0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, April 1st, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, first phase of new Ankeny sports complex expected to be completed by October. By Kathy A. Bolton. An Ankeny resident with a background in coaching at the youth and college levels is developing a sports complex in the community that will provide young athletes involved in a variety of sports a place to practice and compete. Prairie Trail Sports Complex, which is proposed on about 9 acres at 2250 Southwest Vintage Parkway in Ankeny, is expected to include more than 96,800 square feet of indoor athletic space spread over three buildings, said David Lane, the project's developer. A fourth building could be erected if there is demand for it, he said. There is a shortage of indoor athletic facilities in Ankeny, said Lane, a former high school and college basketball coach. During COVID, when the schools were shut down, that need was really amplified. Many of the clubs, and Parks and Rec, used the school gymnasiums for practices, and you couldn't get in them because they were closed, he said. The proposed development is one of four new projects planned in Ankeny's Prairie Trail, a 1,031-acre planned community located on the former site of Iowa State University's Dairy Research Farm. The other three projects are planned in the district, Prairie Trail's commercial area. They include a 36,919-square-foot mixed-use building called District 5. The three-story L-shaped building will be anchored by the Breakfast Club, a trendy restaurant that serves breakfast foods and cocktails. The restaurant will be located in street-level space. Office space is planned on the second and third floors of the new building, which will be located southwest of the development's Town Square Park. Construction is expected to begin this spring. The Breakfast Club, which has a location in downtown Des Moines, is expected to open in spring 2023, said Ashley Johnson, marketing director for DRA Properties LC, Prairie Trail's master developer. A 31,000-square-foot, four-story building with a permanent stage that will be located on the west edge of the park, Johnson said. The stage is expected to be ready for use by the 2023 event season. The building's first and possibly second floors are expected to include an entertainment, food, and beverage use. Johnson said, we are looking forward to placing just the right tenant in this space a 133-room home to Suites and True by Hilton that will be located south of Kirkendall Public Library. The hotel is being developed by Kinseth Hospitality, which operates the residence in by Marriott, also located in the district. Construction of the new hotel is expected to begin this spring. The district has remained quite healthy throughout the pandemic, Johnson said. The local community has been very supportive and businesses, commercial and office, continue to want to locate in the district, she said. Youth sports tournaments are expected to be held on weekends at Prairie Trail Sports Complex, planned west of the district. Tournament participants and spectators will likely be patrons of the retail shops, restaurants and hotels in the district, Johnson said. From an economic standpoint, it will be great. You're going to continue to have new people coming from outside the region who will be exposed to these local businesses, local restaurants. Visitors will be taking advantage of what the district is meant to be, a destination. And that's what we're excited to see, she said. The first phase of the sports complex is the Field House, a 33,000 square foot facility that will include four basketball courts, four volleyball courts, three batting cages, and 12 pickleball courts, Lane said. Construction is expected to be completed by October. In 2023, a second building, the Diamond, is expected to open. The 13,800 square foot facility will include batting cages for softball and baseball, as well as an area for speed and agility training, Lane said. A third building, called the Coliseum, is planned for 2024 and will include space dedicated to wrestling, esports, and about 37,000 square feet of turf for soccer, lacrosse, and rugby. The building will be about 50,000 square feet, he said. The field house will be constructed with pre-engineered metal and its exterior will include brick and stone accents. Development costs are estimated at $7 million. We want this to look like an athletic youth sports campus, Lane said. The demand for indoor athletic facilities has been well documented in Ankeny. In March 2019, the Ankeny City Council adopted a Parks and Facilities Comprehensive Plan that, among other things, indicated an immediate need for 77,500 square feet of indoor recreation space. That need is expected to grow the more, to more than 110,000 square feet by 2023, according to the plan. Ankeny's population grew nearly 50% between 2010 and 2020 from 45,482 residents to 67,887, according to U.S. Census Bureau data. About 18,000, or 27 percent, of the community's residents are 18 or younger. Ankeny has a lot of kids, and it seems like almost all of them are involved in some type of sporting activity, said David Jones, Ankeny's city manager. There's a strong demand for indoor facilities, and I think it was just a matter of time before the private sector stepped up to do something like this, he said. The project is planned on land owned by DRA Properties. Lane said he is finalizing an agreement to buy the land. The Prairie Trail Sports Complex will be privately operated and will be supported by its members, Lane said. The facility will also sponsor weekend tournaments as well as partner with groups on tournaments. A concession stand will offer popcorn, candy, and drinks. We want to find our niche, Lane said. We want to be a good neighbor to surrounding businesses that can benefit from us bringing in large numbers of people at certain times that the businesses will be able to provide services to. From the Closer Look column... Meet a Leader You Should Know, Nalo Johnson, President and CEO, Mid-Iowa Health Foundation by Joe Gardiaz. Nalo Johnson says she's been with Mid-Iowa Health Foundation long enough since mid-November that she's gotten beyond the introductory phase and is, quote, getting to the fun stuff now. Johnson, who has worked in community health leadership roles throughout her career, was most recently Division Director for Health Promotion and Chronic Disease Prevention with the Iowa Department of Public Health. In that role, she oversaw a 100-member team across four bureaus and one office with a $100 million annual budget consisting of federal, state, and philanthropic funds supporting programs ranging from maternal and child health to nutrition and physical activity, chronic disease prevention and management, disability and wellness, injury prevention, and oral health. For Johnson, the fun stuff is applying a data-driven approach to identify health challenges within the community and developing meaningful interventions to address them, leveraging the funding raised by the foundation. She succeeds Suzanne Minnick who led the foundation for more than a decade before departing to intentionally make room for a new leader for the grant-making organization. In 2019, Johnson received national recognition for her work from the American Public Health Association, which presented her with the Henrik L. Bloom Award for Excellence in Health Planning and Policy Development. The award recognized her leadership of the Johnson County Public Health Process for the Community Health Needs Assessment, which she ensured represented broad community engagement. How did you get started in the public health field? My PhD is in American Studies, so my academic interest has always been around how do we address community needs along the social determinants of health? How are we able to bring folks together around a particular community health need in order to utilize everyone's expertise and resources to address that need? I met my husband while I was in graduate school and he was in dental school. By the time I graduated, having read all of the community health literature that came into our household, I knew very much that I had an interest in being in community health and being in the field as a practitioner. Tell me about the American Public Health Association Award you received in 2019. I'm very, very proud of that award. That was for our work on our community health needs assessment, which is something that every health department is required to do at least every five years. A lot of health departments then align with their local health systems who are in a three-year CHNA rotation. So that's a strong partnership to be able to have them aligned. Oftentimes, what you would see is, folks will hold a couple of focus groups or have a community-wide survey, but not ensure that that survey was truly representative of the community. And we really wanted to move past that to say, how can we make this truly representative of the entire Johnson County community? When we looked at the previous assessment, it was very clear the survey data collection was almost 85% middle-aged, middle-income white women in Iowa City. Working with a team of 13 public health students, the department widely deployed a community-wide survey at a number of public venues to ensure that a wide range of community members were represented. Evidence-based, scientifically validated data collection methods were used. How do you see the opportunities or resources available to you in heading up a nonprofit foundation focused on health? Why I felt equipped to even consider myself in this role is because I feel very strongly, based on how the foundation articulates its strategic vision and mission and approaches its work, it's really a public health framework. So it is very easy for me to see my point of view and my skill set and expertise as transferable to meet the needs of the organization. The way in which I view our work is to be data-driven in understanding where the needs exist, to look at those kind of interventions that are evidence-based or showing promising practices so that we have a sense around what impact we can get from making an investment. What are some of the mainstay areas of the foundation that you see continuing under your leadership? I spent most of my time these last three months doing that review of what has been the granting portfolio, what has been the priorities previously, so I can get a grounding and understanding of what the trajectory of the foundation has been. And I would say, based on that review, we have an emphasis around our systems change initiatives So, thinking about not just individual health outcomes, but at a population health level, I think another area of emphasis would be support for community-wide types of training around some of these key social determinants of health issues and how we can raise that conversation around things like a health equity framework, for example. Also, thinking intentionally about ethnic-based, community-based organizations, such as what we saw through the Disaster Recovery Fund. Who may need additional resources in order to address needs within those communities that don't necessarily have the same kind of familiarity with our traditional funding sources? Did you cross paths with Suzanne Minnick earlier in your career? My first introduction to Suzanne and the organization was as a funder. While I was at IDPH in my former role as Division Director of Health Promotion and Chronic Disease Prevention, we stood up a new program offering community-based, culturally congruent doula services for African-American women in our Title V program. This is part of the goal of reducing the state's maternal health disparities that exist. I'm not certain who put me in touch with Suzanne, but I was very fortunate to have Mid-Iowa Health Foundation be a funder of that project. I'm excited now to be in this role and support that work through the foundation as well. It is big shoes to fill, that's for sure. I am so grateful for Suzanne's leadership and for the work of the foundation and the reputation they have within the community. To borrow a favorite question we ask for 40 under 40. What's one word that describes you? Speaking of 40 under 40, I was a 40 for the Corridor Business Journal in 2019. When I was interviewing for this job, I looked back at my profile and one of the questions they asked was, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And my response was something to the extent of, I would start a foundation committed to addressing health equity issues around a broad spectrum of social determinants of health. So the fact that now, two years later, I have an opportunity to lead a foundation that is committed to addressing the social determinants of health and using a health equity lens, I like there are stars aligning in the world. What kinds of hobbies or outside activities do you enjoy when you're not working? Well, I spent the last two years pandemicking for IDPH. So 16 hour days supporting our programs did not leave a lot of time for hobbies. But I just love spending time with my kids in my free time, whether that's doing board games or bike rides or volunteering. Just having time with them is definitely what floats my boat. Our next feature story is a guest commentary. Maybe you shouldn't always start with why when making strategic decisions. Submitted by Carl Veriger, Associate Professor of Management, Drake University. If you are like most executives and managers I know, you're familiar with Simon Sinek's bestseller, Start With Why. If not, his TED Talk is a great listen at bit.ly forward slash 3 I eight four capital D nine capital Zero Capital O. Cynox main idea is that we should quote start with why when describing products and services. Customers will want to purchase from you based on the why of your organization, based on your company's underlying purpose. Only after establishing the why are you able to effectively describe how you will deliver that product or service. But starting with a why mindset may not be the best approach for senior executives, managers, or venture capitalists who are tasked with strategic decision-making related to novel ideas. According to a recent study in Strategic Management Journal from Matthew P. Mount, Marcus Baer, and Matthew J. Lupoli. Managers and senior executives are constantly evaluating novel ideas, complex project proposals, and innovative capital investment opportunities. Plenty of academic research shows, and your own experience likely confirms, that we're less likely to support ideas, projects, and investments that we are less familiar with. I refer to this common phenomenon as, quote, the bias of expertise distance, end quote. The more distant a novel idea is from our own fields of expertise, the less likely we are to support it. As a manager, you've spent years and perhaps decades building your own areas of expertise. Yet, as you progress in your career, your decision-making responsibilities will no doubt advance to areas outside your own circle of competence. We all confront novel challenges constrained by expertise distance. We're all experts in some areas and novices in others. An excellent article in the Harvard Business Review titled, Leading People When They Know More Than You Do, provides some additional insights on overcoming the challenges of expertise distance in your career. The academic study introduced here shows that starting with how, as opposed to starting with why, may be more beneficial when seeking to understand ideas in the face of expertise distance. Before explaining further, though, we'll need to take a short trip into the wilds of academies. Scholars from social psychology have shown that we perceive opportunities through a, quote, mental construal, end quote. In management, the basic idea of a mental construal is that all decision makers perceive information differently, and that these differences in perception influence our interpretation of information and, consequently, our strategic choices. That's a fancy way to say something simple. Our interpretation of how information is presented, how we construe that information, influences our decision-making. Researchers divide these individual interpretations of information into high-level, why, and low-level, how, mental construals. A why mindset focuses on the underlying purpose of new ideas, projects, and investments. High-level construals use abstract explanations of a novel novel idea. Starting with why seeks to expand your mental horizons to incorporate distant objectives and the broader goals behind the idea. It gives you the big-picture perspective, a how mindset, Mindset, on the other hand, focuses on the practical processes of the novel idea. While a high-level why construal is abstract, the low-level how construal is concrete. Instead of expanding mental horizons, a mindset of starting with how focuses your attention on the unique and distinct structure of a novel idea and how it might be implemented in your organization. It is structured to understand detailed tactical work. The study by Mount and colleagues introduced here shows that when presented with an idea, project or capital investment that lies outside your areas of expertise, You're better off starting with how to overcome the inherent bias of expertise distance that influences your decision-making. The sample in Mount's study consisted of 120 executives with capital allocation responsibilities related to telecommunications research and development at eight different organizations. The research and development executives were presented with the question, What percentage of your available budget would you invest in the emerging cybersecurity technology Quantum Key Distribution, QKD, to bring it to market? Understanding the specifics of QKD are not relevant for our purposes, but the executives were also asked to rate their own familiarity with the QKD technology. Executives with less understanding of the technology at hand, by definition, Exhibit greater expertise distance from the novel idea. First, the research here clearly shows that executives who are less familiar with a particular technology allocate significantly fewer resources to commercializing it. The results are consistent with the bias of expertise distance and with our own experience. You're much less likely to support an idea you don't understand well. But how can we overcome the bias of expertise distance in strategic decision-making? In the next step of the study, the research and development executives were asked to classify their own decision-making approaches as either starting with a why or with a how mindset. In other iterations of the research, executives were provided explanations of the technology written from either a why or a how perspective. An example here is illustrative. A why mindset, the high-level construal, explains why QKD technology may be beneficial to the company in abstract terms. For example, QKD enhances your team's confidence to accomplish their work by securing communications from electronic intrusions. A how decision-making perspective, the low-level construal though, explains how QKD may be beneficial in a concrete sense. QKD prevents cyber intrusions by using quantum mechanical systems to generate cryptographic keys distributed across your communications network. Executives presented with low-level, concrete explanations of QKD were significantly more likely to overcome the bias of expertise distance and allocate resources to this novel technology. In subsequent tests, Mount shows that starting with how attenuates the bias of expertise distance by reducing the perceived novelty of the technology and increasing its perceived usefulness. The key takeaway, when you know you're outside your areas of expertise, but still need to make a strategic decision, you might consider starting with how instead of with why. Seek first to understand the concrete, tactical applications of a novel idea before considering its underlying purpose. An important caveat remains here. This study only indicates that starting with how is more likely to get to yes when allocating capital resources. What it doesn't show, however, is whether yes is the right answer. Only your own judgment and perhaps a bit of luck can help you out there. Adam Grant, in his best-selling Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World, summarizes the challenge we all face. "...our companies, communities, and countries don't necessarily suffer from a shortage of novel ideas. They're constrained by a shortage of people who excel at choosing the right novel ideas." I hope that being aware of your own bias of expertise distance and the use of why and how presentations to confront that bias can help you get to the right yes in strategic decision making. In our future story, wages for restaurant and bar workers rising at a fast rate. Finding workers continues to be a struggle by Kathy A. Bolton. A release from a restaurant new to the Des Moines dining scene touted starting wages of at least $14 an hour a wage that would allow employees to sustain, quote, an economic livelihood, end quote. The wage guarantee from Tupelo Honey Southern Kitchen and Bar, which in March opened a restaurant in downtown Des Moines, caught the restaurant community's attention. Why? The guaranteed wage is lower than what is currently being offered at several area restaurants. You can't compete in the Des Moines restaurant market for employees if you don't pay at least $14 an hour, said Jessica Dunker, president and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association. Teenagers working at pizzerias are making $14 an hour, she said. Wages of restaurant and bar workers had been on the rise before the pandemic that began in March 2020 wages rose even more as eating and drinking establishments competed for workers to fill positions as the businesses began returning to pre-pandemic operation levels the average hourly wage of people employed by iowa's restaurants and bars rose nearly 18 percent between the third quarters of 2019 and 2021 iowa workforce development shows in 2019's third quarter the average hourly wage of restaurant and bar workers was $7.63. In the same period, two years later, it was $8.98. The third quarter includes July, August, and September. Fourth quarter data from 2021 is not yet available. Establishments in Iowa's rural areas typically pay lower wages, pulling down statewide averages. Also affecting statewide averages are the salaries of servers, who usually are paid a lower hourly wage because of the tips they receive. In the third quarter of 2021, average hourly wages were the highest in Dickinson, Dallas, and Polk counties, ranging from $10.70 to $11.39, the state data shows. The average wages were the lowest in Ringgold, Butler, and Taylor Counties, ranging from $3.48 to $4.31 an hour. Wages have been accelerating recently at rates we've never seen before, Dunker said. A lot of our restaurant groups have been offering competitive wages and benefits for quite a while. Tupelo Honey, a North Carolina-based restaurant chain that serves Southern-style food, opened in the Mies Block Building at 665 Grand Avenue. The company began hiring in February, offering new workers at least $14 an hour, including servers if tips didn't get them to that rate. That minimum hourly wage was offered for full and part-time positions. People who make $14 an hour and work 40-hour weeks earn $29,120 annually. Stephen Frabator purchased the original Tupelo Honey Cafe located in downtown Asheville, North Carolina in 2008. It's always been very important for him to be able to look his staff in the eye and know that when they go home, they can take care of themselves, said Eric Gabrinowitz, executive chef and vice president of culinary for Tupelo Honey. Which at the end of 2021 operated 18 restaurants across the U.S. We know that when you are able to pay your staff more, they are more receptive to coming to work. That's never been proven better than during COVID, he said. In addition to competitive pay, the restaurant chain offers full time employees accrued paid time off, health care plans. Dental and vision insurance options, wellness, tuition, and transportation reimbursements, paid parental leave, and after an employee has been with Tupelo Honey for one year, 401k matches and profit-sharing bonuses. Chris Diebel, founding partner of Bubba, Southern Comfort's restaurant at 210th Street in downtown Des Moines, said many area restaurants have been offering similar benefits since before the pandemic. Also, it's typical for many people who work in the kitchen of a restaurant, dishwashers, prep and line cooks, sous chefs, to be paid $15 or more an hour depending on their experience, he said. That's where the market is, Diebel said. Finding enough people to fill all the positions in a restaurant or bar continues to be difficult for establishment operators. In the third quarter of 2019, which ended about six months before the start of the pandemic, 104,572 people were employed by by Iowa's restaurants and bars, state data shows. During the same period, two years later, 98,373 people worked in the sector, a decline of 6% or 6,199 people. In Polk County, 19,505 people worked in restaurants and bars in the third quarter of 2021, 9% or 1,980 fewer than the 21,485 that worked in the sector during the same period in 2019 according to the state data. Tupelo Honey said it was hiring 100 people to work at its Des Moines restaurant. The chain hosted a hiring fair during much of February. By early March, it had hired more than 80 people. We've been very excited about the quality of applicants and the number of people who applied for jobs, Gabrinowitz said. Dunker of the Restaurant Association said eating and drinking establishments across the state are having difficulty attracting and keeping workers. She said before the pandemic, our fastest growing demographic was people who were 55 and older. Now we're not getting those workers and a lot of others back. Diebel said Bubba's has had a sous chef position open for nearly two months The pay for the job is about 20% higher than what was offered before the pandemic, he said. The few applicants that we received the first month the job was posted were underqualified. Now we're seeing a couple applicants that would have been considered green pre-pandemic, but today they are folks we're willing to train because that is the environment that we're living in, he said. Chef owner Lynn Pritchard opened 503, a drink lab and tasting room at 503 East Locust Street in February. Pritchard, who operated Table 128 in Clive for eight years before it closed last summer, hired 11 people who had worked at Table 128 to work at 503. While he was able to hire enough staff for the new establishment, he said he is worried whether he'll be able to hire enough people to work at Table 128 when it reopens in the summer in downtown Des Moines. Initially, Table 128 will only be open for dinner, Pritchard said. Lunch and brunch will be added only when the restaurant has enough staff. A lot of operators in the Des Moines area have eliminated meal service because they can't staff it. Richard said, I'm not going to advertise that Table 128 has lunch if I don't have enough people to staff those hours. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, April 1st, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Turning now to the leadership column by Susanna DeBaca, President and CEO, Business Publications Corporation. Are you an agile leader? I'm not afraid of storms, for I am learning how to sail my ship, said Louisa May Alcott, the famous Civil War-era author and activist. Alcott's words, especially relevant for modern-day leaders who are navigating constant change, appear at the beginning of a chapter in a recently published book called The Age of Agility, Building Learning Agile Leaders and Organizations by Veronica Schmidt-Harvey and Kenneth P. Demuse. The concept of agile leadership addressed in this work is becoming increasingly important as leaders and organizations face continued and constant disruption. Do you consider yourself an agile leader? I have always considered myself quick to adapt. But like so many individuals leading organizations over the last few years, I have been tested by the magnitude and rate of change. How I learn and react and how I lead others to do so has evolved at warp speed. It has been evident that some people and organizations can adapt quickly and others struggle or are slow to react. It has been equally obvious that those who can rapidly adapt Innovate and change are more likely to succeed. Can learning agility be developed? While some people are naturally agile learners, Harvey and Demuse assert that various concepts and behaviors can be trained and developed, saying that becoming learning agile requires the development of behaviors associated with the ability to learn and adapt, but to also be able to apply them simultaneously and rapidly in dynamic leadership situations. That sounds complicated, but ultimately requires thinking and acting differently. This opinion is echoed in a recent McKinsey & Company report called The Five Trademarks of Agile Organizations – which says that to build and lead an agile organization, it's crucial that senior leaders, quote, develop new mindsets and capabilities to transform themselves, their teams, and the organization, end quote. Agile leaders draw from experience, but learning from the past is not enough. A McKinsey article says organizations must begin by both, quote, extending and transcending, end quote the skills that made their leaders successful in the past. In other words, in addition to learning from past experiences, agile leaders will keep moving forward with an open mindset and cultivate the capabilities needed for the future. I asked leaders how they have become more agile during the last few years of pandemic and disruption. Kavi Chawla, partner with Bataan Global, I have become a more agile leader by leading through vulnerability. As a leader, one is expected to have the answers. Early in the pandemic, no one had answers. Being vulnerable about the fear and risks of uncertainty, both professionally and personally, empowered me to lead individual team members and the team through the pandemic. Jeff Fleming, John and Mary Papa John director of the Des Moines Art Center. The pandemic coincided with a renewed urgency on our diversion and inclusion efforts. Both of these motivated me to be open to ways of working that didn't exist before the pandemic. This includes how we interact with audiences, artists, galleries, funders, and each other in the workplace. This newfound responsiveness has now become part of our operating practices. Rosemary Parson, Senior Vice President, Policy Administration and Community Relations at Equitrust Life Insurance Company. Instead of relying on tradition and trend analysis, I now lead with current narratives such as digital transformation, managing by objectives, compassion and creative engagement. I've redefined professional presence and collaborative expectations. In addition, I established a work-hard, play-hard culture, encouraging leveled-up skill sets, layered business risk mitigation strategies, and competitive sidelining. These may be wave-of-the-future leadership table stakes. David Stark, President and CEO at UnityPoint Health, It has been a wholesale shift to make decisions quicker in response to rapidly changing information. Perfect information is the enemy of good when it comes to action, which means you must know credible sources of information. Here are four ways to become a more agile leader. 1. Develop mindful awareness. Mindfulness is key to learning agility because it allows leaders to quickly scan what is happening and to forecast future conditions, say Harvey and DeMuse. Chawla encourages leaders to, quote, make empathy the foundation of how you lead in order to remove roadblocks and unlock the potential of every individual you lead, end quote. He stresses that being truly empathetic requires a very deep understanding of oneself, what drives and motivates you, and, quote, it is only when you truly know yourself that you are able to fully understand others and be openly and fully empathetic to them. End quote. Number two, change your mental models. According to Harvey and Demuse, mindset shifting may prove to be quote, one of the most potent facilitators end quote, in agile learning. Parson concurs, advising leaders to, quote, step outside of traditional leadership echo chambers and stay receptive to challenging, innovative, and potentially disruptive thinking, end quote. Fleming says, be open to any idea, but keep the focus on the mission. Number three, Connect. Connecting with and learning from others vicariously and directly, asking for help and feedback, as well as truly listening to and caring about your team, allows you to be more agile and effective. Stark agrees, saying, Embrace your team, show up. Those have never been more important than during a prolonged crisis. And number four, forecast the future. Harvey and Demuse point out that forecasting future events is typically a part of strategic planning, but will be an increasingly important element of agile leadership. Parson advises leaders to, quote, maintain readiness for unforeseen yet not unforeseeable events, end quote, using the pandemic as an example of a disruption few dreamed could happen. She points leaders forward, saying, we must design, quote, for the next iteration of leadership in business, life, and community, producing leading-edge roadmaps for our future, end quote. From Drew McClellan's marketing column, Using Data in Marketing Last week, we walked through the definitions of first, second, and third-party data and how you would generate, find, or purchase data at each level. In this week's column, I'd like to explore how you might use each different type of data in your marketing efforts. First-Party Data Just a reminder that first-party data comes directly from your audience or customers, and you've collected it yourself. This gives you an incredibly high level of confidence that the data is reliable and accurate. Privacy laws aren't really a concern when you use your own data. So what exactly can or should you do with it? With first-party data, you can gain some valuable insights even if your data set is relatively small. Because there's so little room for error, you can effectively work with a smaller sample size. You can gain incredible audience insights from your first party data. You can watch website behaviors, for example, and predict, based on other people's past behavior, when a visitor will actually buy something. You can also monitor what kinds of ads, both messaging and channels, are the most effective to trigger the call to action you prefer. One of the most powerful elements of using first-party data is that you can personalize your messaging, creating a sense of a custom experience for your prospect or client. Second-party data Remember that second-party data is data you would purchase from a single source, like a trade association. It is collected the same way first-party data is, only you're not the one collecting it. The upside of second-party data is that it's very reliable, much like first-party data. Because you're going to be working directly with the organization that collected it, you can have a great deal of confidence in it but because it does come from outside your own ecosystem, it also gives you a chance to expand your audience. If your first-party data set is particularly small, you also might seek out second-party data to scale up your insights. This might be particularly useful if you are trying to predict future behaviors. You can deploy some predictive modeling on your data partner's site and then test monitor and adapt as the audience reacts. And third-party data. Just to refresh your memory, third-party data is data that you purchase from sources that did not actually collect the data. These aggregators purchase the data from multiple sources and then deliver it through a programmatic platform. The scale of data available is staggering, but this is where the privacy issues come in technically, the people on these lists did not consent to you having access to them. All of that being said, there are some huge advantages to using third-party data, which is why the marketing industry is so concerned about all of the privacy laws going into effect. Because of the sheer volume, third-party data offers marketers some huge advantages. Third-party data is all about scale. You can use your first-party data to create look-alike audiences within the third-party data set that will dwarf your first-party data numbers. By using third-party data, you can improve the accuracy and precision of your marketing messaging and targeting. You will simply learn more and see patterns more clearly in a larger data set. There's a place in every marketing plan for all three forms of data. Understanding their origins and how you can use them is critical, but it is always going to start and end with your own first party data. If you don't already have a plan for harvesting and leveraging it, the time is now. Now, turning to Dave Elbert's column The Elbert Files A Des Moines Treasure. Mary Ann Clark accomplished a lot in her 93 years as a nurse, executive, mentor, mother, wife, and shoe model. Four years ago, when she retired from Iowa Methodist Medical Center, quote, it took about five people to replace her, end quote. Eric Crowell explained at Clark's memorial service on March 20th. For 17 years, Crowell worked as president and chief executive of Unity Point, the parent company of Des Moines' Methodist Hospital, where Clark was the chief recruiter of doctors and nurses. Crowell told how Clark, a Marshalltown High School cheerleader, became a pediatric nurse during the 1950s and went on to become the hospital's most respected manager. I may have had the title of chief executive, but I really reported to Marianne. Crowell said. She was one heck of a lady and the rarest of leaders, a boss with whom virtually everyone got along and admired, Crowell said. My fondest men- memory, said Dr. Ken Sheen, was that when you were in Mary Ann's you were special. So many times there would be a line of people outside her office. I don't care if you were a housekeeper. A transfer, a nurse or doctor, everyone loved talking to Marianne, said fellow nurse Jane Noble. The first time I met Marianne, Noble said, was over 45 years ago when I was working in the ER. I was scared to death, but she came up to me and put me under her wing. She said, they probably taught you these things when you were in school, but I know a better way to do it. And it was true, she taught me so much. I loved the way she always looked so elegant in her white uniform, Noble said, confiding. One of the the nurses said the reason Marianne wanted to be a nurse was because she looked really good in white. Clark was only 5 feet 2 inches tall and never weighed more than 110 pounds but was, quote, always dressed to the nines, end quote, Noble said. She was this tiny, vivacious dynamo, said Dr. Karen Gerdes, a pediatric intensive care physician recruited by Clark, who became a close friend and travel companion. Gertis recalled a rainstorm in Monaco when Clark, umbrella in hand, appeared to be lifted off the ground. Our very own Mary Ann Mary Poppins, Gerdes said. In addition to recruiting medical professionals, Gertis said, Clark planned events big and small for hospital employees and their families, personally picking out gifts for the occasions. Growing up in Marshalltown, my mom was a daddy's girl who loved the clothes her own mother made because they made her stand out from the rest of the girls, Clark's daughter Heidi Owens recalled during the memorial service. She said her mother was a great cook who prepared food intuitively without recipes, an art she learned from her own mother. When we were children, my mom always had fresh-baked cookies, warm rolls and butter, or miniature lemon meringue pies waiting for us after school, Owens added. She was a great mother and nanny. And she was a shoe model. Husband Bob Clark said, Mary Ann's foot modeling career quote, began when a shoe salesman, who I think she met as a patient, looked down on her lovely size six foot and asked her to model at an upcoming event. End quote. She did, and before long, she was modeling footwear for Yonkers, the new Utica, and other downtown department stores. Marianne liked it because she got paid in shoes, said Bob Clark. From the On the Move section, congratulations on these promotions, changes, and appointments. Carrie McGuire hired as Senior Vice President of the Des Moines Market Leader at FSB. Adam Wiederholt with Turner Construction was promoted to Deputy Operations Manager. Meg Wiest was promoted to Senior Vice President and Chief Claims Officer with EMC Insurance Companies. Sean Pelletier promoted to Senior Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer with EMC Insurance Companies. Jamie Hart was promoted to VP Capital Planning and Ratings Management with F&G. John Feimster, hired as Senior Vice President and Director of Operations at West Bank. Megan Drake was promoted to partner at ID8 Architects PLC. Jim Bartuli hired as Vice President, Operating Expense with F&G Life. And Megan Dunham, hired as an accounting associate with the Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines. And that does it for today's reading of The Business Record for Friday, April 1st, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
1: This is Jim Ralston with an Irish, Irish, Irish short take from the Book of Iowa Curiosities. Check out them checkers from Dubuque. Don Dewebar, creator and curator of the Worlds of Checkers Museum, which also doubles as his apartment, is the special breed of collector who turns an obsession into a way of life. I've gone without many meals just so I could buy books on checkers, he told me. I'm what you call a bibliomaniac. I have over 2,000 checker books before I donated them to the Loras, a private college in Dubuque, and the Cleveland Public Library. While books on checkers are his first passion, or more accurately, his first monomania, he recognizes that they're not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. They're not the kind of book you read for fun, like Little Red Riding Hood. They're about Checker's strategy, just descriptions, really, of what we call lines of play from famous matches with an estimated 500 billion billion possible situations that could rise in a match. I'm not joking there. There's seemingly no end to Checker's strategy, nor the books that one could write about it. That's just fine with Duber otherwise known as Mr. Checkers, Lee's Guide to the Game of Checkers, was first published in 1897, and I had over 500 copies of that book representing 127 different editions. Not many collectors would do that. Indeed, it's widely believed that his collection of books on checkers was possibly the largest, and most certainly the most complete in the entire world. But Mr. Checkers' passion for Checkers didn't stop with books. Over the last 30 years, he's filled his tidy apartment with every checker set imaginable, made of everything from wood to bakelite to bone, as well as an impressive variety of Checkers memorabilia. A kitchen, cabinets, drawers, and even his refrigerator and stove have at one time or another been called into service as the world of Checkers museum storage and display space. Not to worry you little fire marshals in training. Don said he unplugged the stove and refrigerator first. And the best part is his home and museum are open to the public for all to enjoy. It's like the Mona Lisa, Mr. Checker said of his museum. You really have to see it to appreciate it. The Mona Lisa should be, be so lucky as to have a passionate and single-minded caretaker and roommate as Don Drewber. If you feel like visiting Don in his world of checkers, call 563-556-1944 or email him at checkers21 at hotmail.com. That was an excerpt from Iowa Curiosities, Quirky Characters, Roadside Oddities, and Other Offbeat Stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson.